In this episode of Mental Filter, we talk about something that every one of us does just about every day and most likely multiple times a day. And yet we don't necessarily really think about it when we're doing it. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. And I'm talking about eating, talking about food. And for every single one of you, it's a different experience. And on a different day, it's a different experience. We all come from different uh, backgrounds and growing up in different ways, in different families, different cultures. And any given day, it could be a different experience of why we're eating and food and eating and extending that to, to body image can be something that's both fantastic and fabulous and also something that could be negative and unhelpful and brings up a lot of negative emotions and things like that. So really looking forward to this. I know this uh, applies to so many people and I've been looking for the right person to join me and co-host today on Mental Filter. And to remind you, for those who don't know, Mental Filter is really just a passion project to talk about so many different facets of life just through the lens of mental health. So I'm really excited and I know you're gonna enjoy this. If you're here already, take 10 seconds. Whether you're listening to this or you're watching this, like it, rate it, share it, review it, all those little things just help us get a little bit more exposure. I promise you, we are only doing this just to share good, meaningful, helpful content. So without further ado, this is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to Mental Filter. Really looking forward to this episode. As you heard in the introduction, this is all about something we do every single day, hopefully, but we don't necessarily think about it that much. And so I finally found someone who I feel strongly is going to be a, a great co-host for today's topic. And so without further ado, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I'm Dr. Alana Levin. I work at Wildflower Therapy in Philadelphia under Dr. Colleen Reichman. I specialize in eating disorders, mood disorders, disordered eating, body image, all that jazz. Um, so that's just kind of my quick and dirty who I am, what I do. And not to scare anyone off while while she does uh, specialize in all those things. We're not necessarily getting all heavy on all those things. And, you know, don't turn away now. <laughs> We're, but this is something that's really, really just applicable to all of us. Food. Right. Food, which then connects to you know, it does connect to body image. But food is way more than food, which we'll get to. And also what 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 I, I'm sure most people can agree with, like food is something that we can't do without. For the most part, it's not like, you know, I can live without cocaine. Right. I don't I don't have to use cocaine in order to function. And so which which throws a wrench into things sometimes because it's something that is so embedded in our life. But let's not get ahead of yourself. So like clinically, that's the things that that you work on. Before we even get to talking about food, sort of what drove you, what's a little bit of like what got you to this point? To becoming a psychologist or even becoming like, a psychologist and being interested in this. I mean, there's so many, uh, you know, pathways sure. in psychology. No, it's a good question. It's funny because when I first decided I wanted to do psychology, like way back in <laughs> high school, 
I remember like wanting to be a teacher, but for the reasons of like being involved and helping people in their lives. And I was like, there's a much more direct way to do this probably. (laughs) And throughout my undergrad journey got to the point where I realized like, I love psychology. That's my niche. Really want to pursue a degree in clinical psychology and going into grad school. I had known folks who struggled with like eating disorders. I myself had my own eating (laughs) challenges throughout my adolescence and early twenties. And I was just convinced, I'm like, that's not what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to focus on other things, but like something I'll just like, you know, find interesting, but just not where I want to specialize. And I think just through experience and just finding like, as I was diving into the research and I ended up doing my dissertation about weight bias, I'm like, okay, I'm so passionate (laughs) about this. Like why? not just give it a chance, do a rotation, do it full time, see how that feels. And I loved it so much. And I found that just through the combination of just like diving into the research and hands-on experience, I don't know, felt like sometimes something just clicks and you're like, this is, I feel like that's part of finding your niche in psychology. Sometimes like you have certain things you think you're going to like, and you're kind of spot on. And other times you try something and you're like, you know, someone else (laughs) would be really great at working on that. So I feel like that's sort of where I landed. And what I do is a little bit of a nice mix where I'm also working with some folks just (laughs) in air quotes, struggling with depression or anxiety, or like just more like body image and not necessarily a full-blown eating disorder, but also seeing more severe cases. And I think I found that I really like that combination and having that like span of working with different folks, different ages in its own little niche bubble that I think impacts more people than not. I'm sure. I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And sometimes like we wake up like 10 years down the road and like, how did I get here? And yeah, and we never would have like drawn it up that way, but it's, you know, sort of like meant to be. And this is like food and and what you do is actually a great example of sort of why I love doing the podcast, which is everyone who's listening has, if they've listened before, they know this is merely just to share something that I think is meaningful and and helpful to people. It's a great example because it's something that c- that can both be talked out, you know, get into the deep end of like clinical and it, there's disorders. And, and it's also something that just the average layperson can appreciate because it's everywhere. It's something that they're embedded in every day of their life. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit more. We can, the next question I'm going to ask, we could probably spend the entire episode talking about, but I'll try not to, is, well, why do people eat? I know that's an unfair question, but let's just start. Like, what are some of the reasons why people eat? Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated question for sure, because there's so many reasons. And I would argue that for any one individual, it's probably really multifaceted. I think if you ask any individual on the street, like, so why do you eat? I'm sure like at first they'll be like, I don't like, I don't know, to like sustain myself, to like get by, to like have hunger cues, but it gets more complicated because we have so many reasons that we eat during like celebratory events, holidays to like rejoice and like celebrate occasions sometimes because like medically necessary, we need to be eating certain things or eating in certain amounts. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we needed to survive. <laughs> Can't yeah. be avoided. So that's sort of like the baseline. But then for others, you know, there's emotional eating, eating for enjoyment. Like these are all things I look at a really neutral stance. Like I don't see any of these reasons as like good or bad. They just kind of are. And I would say any given day, someone's going to have various reasons why they're eating or what they're eating, what they are eating. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know what? For an unfair question, that was a great, <laughs> that was a great answer. You know, now that you're mentioning it, I would be really curious if they like, you know, stop people on the street. They did one of those like, you know, late night shows and they stop people on the street and ask them like, why do you eat? What would be some of the, the top answers? And you're right for any given person on any given day, it could be a different reason. And it could be, you know, more than one reason. Questions like how often do people actually think about why they eat? So there's like the fundamental reasons that most human beings are, you know, naturally driven to eat. And that is to sustain themselves. They need fuel, just like a wild, um, you know, deer has to eat. I don't know if they think about eating or why they're eating, but they're driven to eat. So we are also driven to eat. Now, if it's just for sustainment, then we could live on, I don't know, some, you know, dry bread and, and water. And, uh, you know, I'm not a nutritionist, but it could be, it could be really, 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 really basic. And there are some people who intentionally do that, right? They're, you know, they, they live certain lifestyles like that. Before we got on, I sort of tried to stop and think about, and it's not even a comprehensive list, but I'll share like some of the, you mentioned a lot of them, but so we have for sustainment and survival, there's how often can we think about where I'm eating, not really because I'm hungry, but we're socializing. So you're having an event with friends and either it's accepted socially or it helps lubricate the conversation, you know, how many meetings are done you know, lunch meetings or dinner meetings. And it's just that sort of, then you, like you said, there's, there's religious reasons. So there's, there might be very deep meaning in eating now or this type of food. So I, I have a Jewish background. So, I mean, I mean, there's food for everything yeah. <laughs> and, I, and that's true. And that's true for so many different cultures and so many different religions. There's actual meaning why this food, why now, and it has zero to do with filling my belly, you know? And absolutely. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that. No, 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 absolutely. I'm in agreement with that. It comes up more frequently than not, both like religious holidays, secular holidays, like it, it's all over. And even like social gatherings, like to celebrate a graduation or a birthday party. Like I think food is just a part of, often of like, that it's just kind of like a assumed <laughs> aspect of that social activity and then varies from family to family and region to region so like the thanksgiving dinner in probably in northwestern america is different than southwestern america or in your family your great grandmother's recipe of this whatever it is and it's like God forbid that you should not like have that at your table. I mean, this is what we do. I mean, if you want to be part of this family, that's what you're going to do. What do you mean you don't barbecue? What does that mean? And so speaking, and then we'll maybe we'll get more into the emotional eating and, and things like that. We do have to say that with all those things that we mentioned, there can be neutral, there could be positive, and there could be 
negative like associations within all those contexts, whether it's religious, whether it's societal, social, familiar. Can you talk a little bit about some of those, you know, could be both positive and and negative associations that that then subsequently contribute to this maybe an unhealthy relationship with food. Can you speak a little bit to those types of things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's an interesting and multifaceted question in its own way, in part because in terms of looking at the positive, right? Like there can be a sense of emotional bonding and co-enjoyment that people are having in eating something together, enjoying it together. And beyond that, you were noting like the family recipes or even the religious things, like everyone's eating, there's like a sense of nostalgia or community or connection that can come through food and eating in that way. And also just baseline enjoyment, right? Like people who, I mean, not just people who proclaim themselves as foodies, but foodies are great examples who are running around. Like it's a big part of what brings them enjoyment and something they really like looking into different restaurants and trying new places. And it's just a really, it's a hobby almost, but one that brings them genuine joy, which is great, you know, psychologically, if you're enjoying that eating experience, you know, it's only, it's linked to even your GI track, like processing the food better. I think on the other side of things where things can get complicated is there's a lot of different rhetoric and messaging around eating that gets internalized or genetic predispositions to different disorders that make people more sensitive to certain things, more likely to potentially develop disordered eating or an eating disorder or just like general, generally speaking for the average person who doesn't have that genetic predisposition, they're not immune <laughs> to negative messaging that can make the eating experiences really stressful, like something they're putting a lot of thought into, something they feel like they should feel guilty or bad for quote, indulging in certain things. And in and of itself, that creates like a totally different experience with eating. I mean, the amount of people who are eating things that like they can barely stomach, they don't enjoy, but they're doing it for the sake of quote, like health, like this is the new trendy, healthy thing. And I'm doing this diet, but like I'm gagging down this vegetable, (laughs) you know, that I'm making a certain way to hit X, Y, and Z, whatever. That can create a pretty like negative or aversive experience with eating. Completely. It can be, yeah. Yeah. I totally, totally agree. There's these associations that can come from different directions. So it could be like a messaging that they got could be like, let's say from family about their eating or eating certain things, or whether it's eating more or eating less, like, you know, you have to eat this and you're not eating enough or, but there's also like, is it fair to say that there could be almost an imprint of a negative experience if say, you mentioned like emotional bonding. So like a neg- negative emotional bonding. So say um, I was eating a particular food when this event happened. Let's say I heard about the death of someone or I don't know, my parents used to fight and it was when we had lasagna, you know, like, is it fair to say that there could be this like, or I don't know, I went to a, a restaurant and uh, I don't know, I was eating Mexican food and then I got sick. Like, are those, is it fair to say, what's behind sort of like the imprint with those experiences? Yeah, I think based off of like my work with folks and experience, just talking and reading, 
the last one you noted in particular, like eating something and then getting like physically ill tends to have, I think, understandably still like almost the quickest and most intense association where it's like one isolated incident, but suddenly someone's like, I can't even smell food from that restaurant or I can't look at that food for quite a while, if ever again, it just has like, it's strong, fast, aversive. And they're like, yeah, no. So that's its own kind of negative experience that it's kind of uh, one and done. (laughs) For some folks, it happens and they move on. But I think it can imprint for some others really intensely. For others, in terms of like you were noting, like eating certain foods when there was emotional things happening, it's interesting. It can play out different ways, right? Like that example you gave of like a kid at the dinner table eating lasagna and his parents are fighting and they have lasagna every Thursday night and parents fought every Thursday night. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes that could make the food comforting potentially if the kid's turning towards it as something to put their focus on, something that's still warm, nourishing, tasty. So it's tough to say it for sure would create because it's like more nuanced in that sense. And I, I think too, like when you think about funerals, shiva houses, things like that, right? There's comfort food. And I think people don't have a negative association with it, even though it's at a sad space. So I think when it comes to like things in the environment being more challenging emotionally and food being involved, it can really vary. But for some folks, when they're really upset, they lose their appetite. And that's like what they're remembering that they feel nauseous and it's hard to stomach food and that's a different association so it's really just I mean anyone listening like I think the biggest takeaway is going to be how it's like so nuanced and it's so different for every single person like my experience could be so different than the next and it could be like you said like comforting could be positive let's say you know uh if I was in a down mood like my grandmother gave me I don't know soup it, it goes beyond the soup. Exactly. That's so like, you know, it goes beyond the soup. And it's interesting you said before about food, you know, foodies. I have some foodies in my family. <laughs> and then it's interesting, like, it's it's a great example of like where it goes beyond the food. You know, I don't know who said it or what, exp- you know, I've certainly heard it a million times. Do you eat to live or do you live to eat? Right. right. And so for some, pe- some people who are foodies, I'm not saying in a positive or negative way, it's almost like, it almost has like zero to do with the food. It's art for them. It's art, whether they're they're a chef or they just like appreciate it. And and sometimes, like again, I know some people who are foodies, sometimes it almost feels like they have a hard time enjoying the food because it's so hyper focused on not the food itself. If that makes any sense. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting you bring that up. You mentioned comfort. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like with most things in life, <laughs> things can be both helpful you know, and unhelpful. So can you speak a little bit to, you know, you want to call it comfort eating, you might call numbing, you might call emotional eating. I know it's a lot of these terms, you know, for people, I'm sure we have people listening who are clinicians or people more informed than people who are just, you know, the average person. Can you help us out with, you know, these terms are thrown out, you know, emotional eating and stress eating and like, what's helpful information about how we use food and that comforting could be both helpful or unhelpful. Sure. I think like all of when people hear emotional eating or stress eating, it almost gets like a bad rap (laughs) because it's, 
people just assume like, I shouldn't be doing that. That's a bad thing to do. But from my stance, from what I've read, what I've seen, we're not giving people a hard time for other ways that they cope. And sometimes it's because again, like diet culture messaging around food should only be a certain way and we need to all be whatever. Um, I could give a whole litany of examples of why this gets a bad rep, but I think it's more so if people can find a way to do it with intention, right? It's giving themselves permission, like, okay, yes, this is a comforting thing or, you know, I'm having a rough day and I bought some chocolate to treat myself, right? Like that's giving yourself that positive coping. But if someone's engaging in it and then beating themselves up, it's counterproductive, right? Like you ate something because you were craving it and you were stressed. And next thing you know, it creates this out of control feeling. And then you maybe had so much that you feel ill, like it can get complicated, right? Or they don't, they just have like something they enjoy. And afterwards, like, oh, I shouldn't have had that. Like, why'd I do that? And it defeats (laughs) all the reasons that we try to cope. So I think it's more related to like giving yourself that intentionality and allowing for it in a way that feels like positive, which is complicated, right? People have complicated relationships with food. So it's not as simple as what I just said, but trying to get to that place where they can do the comfort eating without then all this internal negative dialogue about engaging in that act. Yeah. So that's a great answer. I'm glad you said that it is complicated because I don't want anyone to take away like, oh, here's the simple approach to it. It's not because Yes, on one hand, we want to have that balance. And if we don't allow ourselves, what happens is we make it into a bigger deal than it has to be. And so when it does happen, because we're all like fallible human beings, then it becomes, this is not just with food, but it's a lot of things, but we turn it into the boogie monster. And, you know, eating after 10 o'clock or having chocolate or having that piece of cake or going over X amount of calories, whatever, fill in the blank. And then it's like, when it happens, it's like, oh my God. And then, you know, we really jump on ourselves and criticize. And then it just becomes its own bigger problem than it has to be. So yes, giving the permission. And at the same time, so many of us fall into this all or nothing. And it's like, okay, I heard that I should give myself permission So now I need to take permission to like the nth degree and like, okay, here I'm pulling out this, you know, gallon of ice cream, which I know is is not going to be healthy for me. And I'm sitting down for an hour and I'm mindlessly eating and then doing this like five out of seven days. And I don't feel good, but yeah, but I'm supposed to give myself permit. Like that's also not going to be helpful. So I appreciate saying it's complicated. There's no simple answer to that. Yeah. And I would speak to like, whenever I've kind of talked about that all or nothing thinking with folks who have struggled to find a way to incorporate this in their life that feels good. I always talk about like, our bodies are pretty wise (laughs) and all this external messaging, both the internal dialogue and things we take in sometimes distance us from our bodies. But if we're kind of engaging in certain behaviors, we'll feel physically uncomfortable and ill, (laughs) right? If we're eating for example, a gallon of ice cream a night, right? Not to villainize that. If someone does that, like it's not worth, I would argue, like don't beat yourself up. But if you keep kind of turning in towards getting back in touch with your body, like we were all kind of born intuitive eaters 
And it just has gotten complicated as we go through our life and like all that messaging. So is there a way to get back to the focus of what feels good psychologically, physically, you know, like in that holistic fashion? And I think that's what can help because yeah, the all or nothing (laughs) can come up, but yeah, I I really like what you said because it's almost like uh, the way I interpret what you're saying is almost like reverse engineering a bit way because it's very, very confusing with the messaging we got that, you know, whether there's a million and one businesses and companies and products that their job is to make us feel like you need this you need to buy this or you need to eat this or you need to have a certain lifestyle. And then we're sort of trying to get there. And what my takeaway from what you're saying is sort of to reverse engineering is to take a step back before you have any destination in mind. It's trying to like, just understand yourself. Like you said, we're born intuitive and get to know yourself, get to know yourself, be curious, observe yourself, observe like without, without even saying like, you're going to do anything about it. no, for no solutions, no changes, no, no, nothing. Just observing. What are your patterns? Like, okay. When you do eat that gallon of ice cream, you know, get to just understand what you're experiencing that then leads to and not, and not jump to, Oh, I have to do something different no. before that. It's like, we have been conditioned, you know, because of so many different factors and just get back to understand yourself. And then, you know, we talk about like, mindful eating versus mindless eating and just get back to just understanding yourself even understanding like what triggers that you know in one of my notes you you saw that i wrote like pavlov you know i think most people have learned at some point about pavlov and his dogs and i conditioned them to salivate at the sound of a bell before feeding like we're all dogs (laughs) i mean you know we've all been like conditioned just okay take a step back and understand what our conditioning is, you know, I think it's very applicable to talk about sort of like access and um, socioeconomic statuses of families and neighborhoods and how that impacts people's relationship with foods, whether it's in another country or whether it's in another neighborhood that's like five miles from where you and I live. How does that impact people's relationships with food? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really um, thoughtful point. Because, you know, literally there's disparities across the country in terms of access to things. And it can, in its own ways, cause complicated relationships to food in the sense that when you don't have access to foods across the spectrum, right, or access to fresh foods and things like that, not to by any means like villainize certain foods, but it's just in terms of people being at that physical level, getting everything that they need, there's just a disparity in what people can afford, what people can access. And also it can get really, I would argue like a added layer that makes it complicated, right? Is canned fruits and vegetables, for example, are cheaper, more accessible, but sometimes the messaging around it is that it's not that great, (laughs) but it would be better if you can't access fresh, right? And also, even if you can, like sometimes it's more convenient, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think just in terms of the detriments of health or even the development of potential disordered eating, it can come from folks living through times where maybe they really did not have access and went through periods of extreme hunger and barely getting by. And it, you know, 
then later when they're at points where they do have access, there can still be a lot of mistrust <laughs> or even a valid, like, I don't know how long this will last. So I think it's something that in many countries are as well is perhaps a little bit like under researched, under supported. It's not like where a lot of effort is put. I think we see some changes here and there, but it definitely is something to consider because again, the larger messaging about how we should or shouldn't be eating, that's not necessarily even accurate, but also like it's not accessible, right? And then people psychologically are beating themselves up for eating a certain way when that's what they have access to. And nutrition is better than no nutrition. Right. Um, yeah, you get that messaging. Oh yeah, you should you should and you could be able to eat like this healthy lifestyle. Again, assuming that that's even accurate, like great that's in theory like so as you were talking i think some examples that have come up you know myself working with people and i remember being i forget which class it was probably way back in i think in maybe in graduate school even um you know when you drive through certain neighborhoods and this is so completely of stereotyping but it's accurate that you go through certain neighborhoods what are like certain i remember the professor asking like what are certain staples that you're going to see? What kind of stores are you going to see if you drive through a neighborhood that is at a lower so socioeconomic status, right? So there's going to be a check cashing place. There's going to be a liquor store. There's going to be a fast food place. And I forget what else there was. Like, you know, so if that's what's there, right? And it's, you know, $2.99 for a family meal, whatever it is, then yeah, to expect like, oh yeah, you should have like a, you know, nice fresh salad and eating like lots of vegetables and fruits like that's expensive <laughs> expensive and then also time so if you're in a family who let's say it's a single parent home let's say it's not they're working two jobs three jobs they're getting home at who knows when maybe the kids have to come home and the parents aren't even home yet so what they're going to eat they're going to eat uh they're going to eat like healthy food they're going to sit and make a kale salad or whatever like that it's not going to happen Right. So it's like you said, it's very, very real. And the last thing I'll say on this, and you can add if you have more, is <clears throat> sort of like the past generational even experiences and, and trust. So like I said, I, I have a Jewish background, so it wasn't that unusual for people who went through the Holocaust. I'm, I'm sure other people who've been through other like apartheid heroes can relate that, you know, children of Holocaust survivors, like when they got dinner, like you best be finishing your plate before you leave. You do not throw a drop of food away, even if it's scraps, because they lived through when they would, you know, eat a potato peel or go through, you know, garbage out in the fields to eat something like, and then that translates like generationally to having a very, very, um, I don't know what you want to call it distorted not just a, a very like rigid way of eating yeah no it's interesting what you shared i kind of have like two thoughts in different directions so i'll kind of bounce off on both and kind of jumping back to the lower ses piece of things i think too it's even this idea of messaging because i very much take the stance like that's right more food neutral so like what classifies healthy is complicated and I think because of these messaging and lack of access to having these conversations, you know, it can feel complicated. And you were noting based off of what's around, there's this concept of food deserts where there's certain neighborhoods, there's not even a grocery store, right? So 
that in and of itself really complicates things. You give the example of low SES might not have access or it's to quickly, easily get to a grocery store. There's so many layers of complication there for getting food, generally speaking, and then they're really getting by or as best they can. And kind of jumping to your second point about, you know, folks that like things passed down in generations and the Holocaust, I think there's two interesting pieces to it. The first being like, yes, that messaging that comes can be really intense and passed down and create this sort of urgency or guilt around like, oh, I'm full, but I got (laughs) to... finish it, or even potentially confusing messaging. Cause sometimes in the family, there's like messaging around like what the ideal body should look like. But then you have the grandparents being like, you look like you gained weight, but you need to finish your plate. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I'm getting it from both sides. But two, what's fascinating in the research, there's this concept epigenetics. And for folks who aren't familiar, it's just basically like we all have our different genes and different lived experiences can turn in on and off um, different markers. And what we see for folks that have lived through famine, whether it was the Holocaust or the potato fat famine, apartheid, whatever, it epigenetically impacts those folks. And that's a gene that's then passed along which can make people more at risk for developing an eating disorder, like their later generations. Um, so that yeah. sounds, that reminds that that sounds similar to like intergenerational trauma that I've heard about. Is that the yeah. same? Is that a similar concept where somehow it yeah. gets into the DNA and then it, even though they didn't experience it themselves, but it's in their DNA. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Wow. That's both fascinating and frightening. At the, at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the kind of things I find it both helpful to know, because I think for some people it can feel frightening, but it's more like feeling aware, like, why am I struggling so much with X, Y, and Z, right? Because we, for example, we all live in a culture where we're getting diff- certain messaging about how we should but why are some people more impacted than others? And understanding like some folks are just more genetically predisposed for that messaging to feel more salient, to make them feel more anxious, to fixate on it more, whereas others kind of seem unbothered and just kind of continue on. So I think that could be, like you're saying, it could be a little reassuring because I can see someone you really blaming themselves. Like, how, I, I, how come I can't do something about this? And it's like, you know, some of it is some of this nature. That's the oldest question, you know, nature, nurture, and there's no exact answer. Do you find... Again, I'll throw another unfair question. Do you find that people who either have some of that nature or they have some of that early history, like imprints, whether it's from family or their own experiences, like, is there hope for them to change their relationship with food? Yeah. I mean, I strongly believe that anyone could, and I'm not saying it's easy, right? I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think with the proper support and doing the work, I mean, I've seen folks who just have had complicated relationships and I'm not saying like a full-blown eating disorder, but just like really shift things around, but also people with severe eating disorders getting to a place where they are not struggling with that anymore. So I kind of, again, in our culture and with certain messaging, I don't want to oversimplify it and say it's an easy thing, but I'm a big proponent and believer in the ability to change if one wants to. 
Yeah. Okay. That's good to hear that there's, there, yeah. there's, ho- there's, there's hope. hope. <laughs> can you, I don't know if this is something that you've been curious about and you've learned about, can you, from what you know, how do you think hum- humans and society sort of relationship with food and how we utilize food and interact with food has like evolved? I'm very curious just in, about history in general. I haven't really necessarily looked particularly into this, but yeah. it does make me very curious, like how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, I would say it's probably just gotten more and more complicated when we're thinking like all the way back to when eating was probably just something we did again, more intuitively, there wasn't all this like complicated messaging, even though if you go all the way back into history, like way back, there's different reasons why people ate then too, in terms of celebration and other things. It wasn't purely survivalistic. So it's more, it's more complicated. So would you agree that for most of history, it hasn't just been about food, but it's gotten more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. I think that like in the past hundred years or so, when I reference diet culture, that's speaking about this multi-million dollar industry of, I'm not trying to blast any particular diets because I don't want, and when I put this out there, I always like to tell people like, I'm not ever speaking at anyone and saying like, you're wrong for having done X, Y, or Z. It's just more like the larger industry. (laughs) There's so many confusing messaging and it goes back to when they first started. And it was like, everything needs to be low fat, low carb, and now high fat, like constant different shifting. And, you know, what we see time and time again is like none of these promised solutions that swear they're the newest golden standard um, are meant for sustainable weight loss. Cause then they like, if everyone did it once and then it was done, that's the end of their market. So it's the kind of thing where we see people going through yo-yo dieting of their weight going up and down and doing a certain thing and being successful, gaining that weight back, if not more, because our bodies aren't thrilled (laughs) about having all these intense fluctuations. And I don't blame people at all for consuming this. It all seems really enticing and promising and the way the marketing's great. Like whoever does the marketing, I need them to do my marketing. And like, (laughs) they really do a great job of promising you this is it. And, you know, again, in a society that more and more has certain ideals put on in terms of aesthetics and how you should be looking again, it feels like this important space where I should, ah, yes, I should follow this next golden solution. And hopefully then I'll be happy and then I'll be good, right? There's so many promises of (laughs) what's going to happen when we do these things. And I think just how quickly accessible all that is and how quickly everything keeps coming out. It doesn't even give people a moment sometimes stop and think, what am I doing and why am I doing it? It's just kind of like, okay, on to the next one. (laughs) Let's keep going. Right. So that makes it hard. So you sort of anticipated one of the things I was going to ask is like, so while trying to avoid getting on a soapbox, right, and taking like a stance, because I don't think that's it's our role. um, How how would you guide someone who says, hey, doc, what should I do? (laughs) Like, again, there's billions of dollars poured into whether it's a certain food or whether it's a certain lifestyle or plan or whatever. So how do I filter like, doc, what should I do? (laughs) Without then jumping on, oh, you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that. And that's bad for you. And that's like, how would you guide someone? 
Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the emotional eating. Like, can we take a minute to recognize all the noise outside of you and think about the messaging you've potentially internalized, potentially meaning likely, (laughs) right? And is there a way to start to get back in touch with like, what do I enjoy eating? What makes my body feel good? What helps my energy levels feel good throughout the day? Really getting to a place where we're neutralizing food, right? And I'm of the philosophy of like all foods fit and I'm upfront with people. And I tell folks like, listen, some people are not ready to jump off the diet train. And I'd rather you have a space to talk about the complicated pieces and what feels like pros and cons, what feels alluring instead of feeling like, oh, well, she has a very different stance. So we can't even talk about it. Like, again, it's not about the dieter (laughs) ever. Um, So more like giving people the space to be like, can we try to shift towards a non-judgmental, curious stance and really recognize what's going on and what impacts our decision of what we're eating and why we're eating and how much and try to better shift that mindset over time. I think it takes like support and guidance. I don't think it's easy to do alone, but I know for a lot of folks I've worked with, it's almost like a brain exploding moment (laughs) where they kind of walk around. They're like, Oh my God, did you realize how many commercials there were about juice cleanses and this and that? I was like, yeah, man, it's wild, isn't it? Once you see how much it's everywhere, it's really alarming. (laughs) I don't know what else to say, but it's to that. Let's be real here. It it all boils down to the dollar. Sure. I mean, that's that's reality. So if there, if there's money to be made, then it's going to be there. And I want, I want to acknowledge for anyone listening or watching that we could go down the route, but it's really, I don't think it would be fair to go down the route of actually getting into like the specifics of disordered eating and eating that there's just too much there for our space to like get into talking about disordered eating and you know, the different eating disorders and because there's just so much there to be unfair to like too much of a tease. So I just like if someone's listening, like, okay, are they going to get to talking about eating disorders? Maybe another episode. This is more like trying to give it like a, like a wraparound. I just don't think it would be fair to, to get into that. So yeah, I agree with everything you said. And part of just getting to know ourselves with eating and just understanding ourselves. Have you found differences between like men and women and as someone who may sound ignorant in in this but you know i mean i have a family so i've lived through it but i haven't actually experienced it of you know when a woman's pregnant and then after pregnancy and so it might be too generalized but differences between men and women when it comes to um, their relationship with food i'll hold off the next question after you answer that yeah I would say it depends and it's complicated because again, there's like the genetic piece, of course, but also on top of that, the hormonal aspects, right? In terms of different cravings and wants, desires, like all of that and beyond just all of that, as much as when they're going through this certain pre-puberty through puberty, their bodies are working hard, need a lot of nutrition, way more (laughs) than I think most parents even know. And that speaks even to a layer further of being curious and noticing rhetoric around potential different genders in eating. Because I know some families who 
it's really encouraged and praised when there's certain quote big eaters or having a ravenous appetites or discouraged. And unfortunately, you know, anecdotally, I've seen like gendered differences, right? For example, sure. all adolescents, their bodies are changing and they need a lot of food. But somehow with boys, it's like, yeah, they're a bottomless pit, ha ha ha. And with girls, it's like, oh, maybe you should be kept, right? Again, these are kind of gross um, overstatements. But I think things that might resonate with some people because they might have heard it in their families, felt impacted by these messaging, or even more. I mean, when you look at, again, like over generalization in a sense, but gendered behaviors in our culture, like women are much more socially oriented in a way of looking toward other, and they might be then making decisions about what they should and should be, shouldn't be eating or how much, oh, I should only eat this much because my friend's eating that much. Or it's like, that might not happen <laughs> amongst males as much. And some of that's, you know kind of behaviorally what's taught and encouraged between different genders as well. Right. Now, have you had, I'm just genuinely curious, have, I don't know how often you had the opportunity to work with people of, you know, coming from either different cultures, different places. What's something that you learned that surprised you that was very different when it comes to food in, in, in a different culture other than, you know, the average American, if there's, if there's even such a thing anymore as average American. That's fair. <laughs> um, I think in terms of just every culture has their different messaging around food or what's considered quote healthy, unhealthy, right? Something that we might really glorify and the States is healthy. They're considering unhealthy. Like it's just speaks to the nuance of that. Or I think the other thing that really strikes me, which is a little sad is that in our society, certain cultural foods are demonized by diet culture. And here that people come being like, this is a food of my culture, a food of my people. And it's considered unhealthy and bad. It creates a confusing rhetoric for them. And I think that can be a little bit of a surprise and challenging to sit with. And yeah. Yeah. And I, and I as you mentioned that you reminded me that there's also sometimes misappropriated assumptions about someone from a certain culture that they eat this oh you must you must like this you must eat this that must be your diet oh and it's no no it's unfair to assume that you know yeah, for sure i just have a, a couple more things here i mean we could talk for for, for whaling i just want to be mindful of your time so i'll mention one you know we haven't really mentioned anything specific i have one curious question about something specific because it's it's very popular now and I had this question just myself is because I know a number of people that have used it is like something like Ozempic now. Right. And I'm genuinely curious. I haven't used it. I don't intend on using it. What's the impact of taking away a person's desire to eat? Right. So I don't know exactly how it works, you know, physiologically, if it takes away a person's desire to eat, how does that impact the person? Like, okay, great. I can check this off that I'm losing weight or whatever it is. But how does that impact the person if they don't have that desire? Yeah, absolutely. I will share. I have a pretty strong thought and stance on this and is very research-backed. I deep dive into the research about this. Please, great. So I'm glad I asked yeah. the question then because yeah. please share. <laughs> Absolutely. So I want to like put out there first, there's folks type one diabetes, 
that take it. That's what it's intended for. That's what it's helpful for. And if you speak to those folks who are taking it for that reason and the recommendations from their doctors, they might be doing things that it, there's a term called mechanical eating, eating, even though you're not feeling hunger cues, cause you know, you need to eat for your body. Right. So suddenly eating becomes like, I need to be doing this. I know I need to be, continue to check my sugars, whatever, but like they're eating very regularly throughout the day. They're doing all these things without that physiological cue, which is its own kind of like, now it's more laborious and thoughtful, but like, that's what they need to be doing to take care of their health. So I'll start with that caveat. Then for the folks where this is like the miracle weight loss drug, (laughs) where it gets really complicated is that usually the intention is not to stay on it forever. And what the research is already showing is folks basically whether they had some binging before or did not, afterwards, it creates the sort of like, you really kind of messed up the gut mind connection, like all these things. And people have what they refer to as this kind of ravenous, unsatiable hunger, which leads to high levels of them. So it can kind of create this, you swung one way, and now that you're off it, your body's swinging the other and trying to make up for things because our bodies are again, wise. And it interpreted what just happened as like, we were in famine. (laughs) Oh, dear God. (laughs) And And are you saying that's true more with something like Ozempic than other sort of more, you know, extreme or more like different dieting more with something like Ozempic? I would say the same thing can happen, but more so with Ozempic, because it literally cuts that physiological cue, right? It got rid of that cue. And now that cue is coming back with the strong force. Whereas with extreme dieting, you still, at least at the beginning, get hunger cues and it gets to a point where it like intensifies and the body again adapts, but it's takes longer. Whereas this is like a, you take it, it's a quick <laughs> impact and people quickly reduce and change their behaviors around food and often are not feeding themselves sufficiently for what they need to be functioning <laughs> at their best capacity. More and more research is coming out about different physical effects. What came out on CNN about still gut syndrome that people procedurally need to get fixed later, or people losing more muscle than fat in the weight loss ratios, which is if you're losing weight healthily, whatever that entails, which is a complicated statement in and of itself, but that those muscle to fat ratio, it's not going to play out like that, like it does with those epic. Because <laughs> again, the true, again, not to villainize it, because some people really need it and it helps them with their type one diabetes. But for folks taking it for weight loss, I think it just has a whole host of complications and negatives. And again, seems really lucrative and alluring, but more often than not is going to come with more problems physiologically, psychologically, long-term, short-term, long-term, not great. Right. It's really, it's really unfair for me to speak about this because I've just been fortunate to, again, for all the reasons that we talked about, whether it's genetics or how I grew up or my body or whatever it is that I haven't had to really struggle. So it's unfair for me to, you know, make any sort of statement on it. At the same time, we certainly 
in our country, we're sort of conditioned to like, okay, there's quick fixes and you can have a quick fix and you should have a quick fix and only for, you know, three payments of 99.99, whatever it is. And I mean, that's, you know, part of the marketing. And even though we've done it and we've one time, two times, three times, and it's real, no, that doesn't work. And we still sort of like get pulled into like, oh, no, but that one's going to be the quick yeah. fix that does work. And it's like, fascinating in a way like not to say again not to say that oh i can sit here on my high horse and say oh well if you just you know if you if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work and it's slow and you sh- you should do it you could do it i i can't speak to that but we are conditioned to, ha- to have and want that quick fix yeah absolutely and i don't blame any individual right but i think i mean i have a few is a few inaccurate statement, at least one client <laughs> who's on Ozempic and talks about the pros and cons. And I don't know. And a lot of it's like, can we work through the messaging that she's internalized? Right. And can we get to a place where the, cause she's like, I know this is bad for my health and I'm doing it, right. So I think it's important for people to feel like they have safe, supported spaces to talk through this. Cause it is so multifaceted. It is so complicated. The urge for the next quick fix is huge and shifting towards like, I take a health at every size stance to shift towards not feeling like you absolutely have to lose weight, but focusing on health can look totally different. And what does that mean? That's a scary leap to take. And I want to validate that because again, our society and the messaging and what is glorified and how people are treated differently based off of weight and shape, right? It's not to ignore that, but can we get angry about what's happening externally without taking it in internally and in turn doing harm to ourselves, I think is a lot of deep work that with the right support, you know, is possible. And I say always, it doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum, because some people I think don't seek support because they're like, well, I don't have an eating disorder. I'm not that sick. It's not that complicated, but it's complicated. (laughs) It's so complicated. And I think if it's something you struggle with, you deserve a safe space to get to talk about it and work through all this messaging that you've internalized and in turn impacts you as a person. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you said that because actually to help sort of put a bow on this, you know, one or two more you know, quick notes, really building on what you just said. I know there's many. What is one, maybe two, like myths or assumptions that people have about eating disorders or disordered eating that if we can help, you know, if even just one person, we can help, uh, you know, take away one of those myths or assumptions that would be fantastic. Yeah, I think in terms of one myth about eating disorders, people think it's about wanting to be thin. (laughs) This blanket, if that's not what I'm struggling with, then it's not an eating disorder, even if that is a part of it. But again, it's the one thing we see in the research is it's genetic largely, and it's something that can be helped. I think another myth is sort of one that instills a message of hopelessness where it's sort of like someone, if they struggle with this, they're forever going to struggle with this. And, you know, treatment can only get someone so far. Um, And luckily we're living in a day of age where there's constant research pouring in and constant things kind of developing. And many folks get to a place where they're totally 
recovered. It's not the sort of hopeless <laughs> diagnosis, which I think sometimes it can sound like or feel like, or the media can make it look that way. And also, I guess it doesn't in fact impact just one gender or one race or whatever. Anyone can be impacted. And I guess my final po- point is that you don't have to be, quote, a certain severity of sick <laughs> to seek support. I think that's a common misunderstanding that someone has to be really struggling to be what worthy <laughs> of support. I think when we unpack it, at least to me, I'm like, well, that feels silly. We don't necessarily say that about other things. So those I are all really so- good. Those are all really good, really relevant. I can relate to that last one for sure with of most of the people that come in. Well, someone else, is this really that bad that I should be here and I should be working? It's not competition. You know, it's yeah. like if you, if you so if you want to change in your life and have, have a certain quality of life, then you deserve that. Let's do it. Whether you can get a certain label or not, that's, that's not the point. So that's really great. So I guess finally, where could, with all, with all that being said, what could be some resources for people that, is objective that people can look, whether it's like just national things. And then if people want to you know, connect with you, how could they connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, this is coming from my stance and my, what I recommend. There's great literature out there about health at every size, or sometimes referred to as haze, H-A-E-S, or intuitive eating. And there's a lot of cool things to kind of look at down that route. Um, Evelyn Triboli, if I'm saying her name correctly, is like kind of the mother of intuitive eating. So you want to see that name associated with it because sometimes people use it in a way that's not what it really is. So you want to be an informed consumer. And, and if folks are ever struggling more or curious, like, I don't know where I land, I know that Project Heal, H-E-A-L, and EA have great resources on their websites for people to do little screeners and just get a sense of the places they may be struggling. Project Heal also helps people connect with providers if they are of lower SES need, which is a really lovely thing that they do. And then to find me, if you go to the Wildflower Therapy website, there's a little link with my bio where they can contact the practice. And I'm always happy to answer an email or chat offline in any fashion. Okay. Fantastic. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much. This is a real pleasure. And I'm sure people got a lot out of it. Yeah. Thank you for having me.